by teaching you a little chorus. Uh, you know, uh, Paul says in Colossians to, to come together and, and bring a hymn to one another. So I'm gonna, this is a little chorus that I have been, you know how Spotify like knows, knows you better than you know yourself? And apparently Spotify knew that I needed to hear this song. So, uh, but I've been, it's a little chorus and it goes like this. It says, uh, it's the Lord our God is good. The Lord our God is good, full of kindness and compassion, merciful and just. The Lord our God is good. Sing that with me. The Lord our God is good. The Lord our God is good, full of kindness and compassion, merciful and just the lord our god is good all right so let's let's start there this morning okay so this is a passage this is a a hard passage and it's a it's a, i don't actually think it's as hard to understand as we sometimes think it is but it's a hard passage for people to get their minds around and so I want to come to this passage with that thought in mind, because you know one of the most important things about you is what you believe about God. And here's what I believe about God. I believe that God is good. I don't think that he is trying to make my life unhappy. I don't think that he's trying to do things to me that are bad. I think he's trying to do things to me that are good. He's bringing things to my life that are going to have his perfect results. So I want us to come to this passage this morning with that perspective. The Lord is good. He is full of kindness and compassion. He is merciful and just, all right? So let's turn to James chapter 2, and we are going to begin in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, so like I said, this has been a historically disputed passage. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great rediscoverer of justification by faith alone. He couldn't make heads or tails of this passage, so he canceled the whole book of James. He referred to it as the epistle of straw. So here's the question, in case you didn't notice already. Here's the problem. Does James' teaching on faith and works 
contradict Paul's teaching that we are saved by faith alone apart from works. And I'm going to tell you right now at the beginning, it does not. And I would like to say to you that after a week of studying this passage, I actually don't think it's that difficult. I think the hard part is that we know what it says and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. And so we need to dig into this passage. We need to try to understand this passage. If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? James would say no. And so I want to bring you to the Word of God this morning. And remember, this is the God who is full of mercy and compassion. He's merciful and just, all right? And so we, we believe that that is the God we're coming to. He's not trying to make our lives worse. He's trying to bless us. And so let's understand this passage from his perspective. My prayer this week is that we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger as we come to this portion of God's Word. All right, let me begin by a, a brief discussion or, or monologue uh, on justification by faith alone. All right, so let's just review this very essential doctrine, and it's good for us sometimes to think about these important doctrines of our faith. So probably one of the best-known passages on justification by faith alone is found in Ephesians 2. So let's just read verse 8 and 9. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. So we believe that the Bible teaches that God has declared us righteous because of his grace and our faith in Jesus Christ, all right? And I think you know this, but just to review, this is a legal concept. It's a courtroom metaphor that we have been declared righteous. When you stand before God, you are guilty in your trespasses and sins. But because of God's grace and our faith, the, 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 the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins and we are declared righteous. A few weeks ago, Teo from Estonia took us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 the fall of mankind. And at the end of that passage, God does two very interesting things that are, that are applicable to justification by faith. He makes a promise of a redeemer. He says there's going to be one who is going to come, and, and he will bite your heel, and he, he will crush his head, all right? So the, 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 this Messiah is going to come, and the serpent is going to deal him a little blow, but then he is going to deal the servant the serpent, a, a death blow. So the promise of a redeemer, and then don't overlook this because this is very key. This is the second thing that God does. God provides a covering for Adam and Eve. So he takes an animal and he kills the animal and he provides them with skins to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. And a lot of people miss that part. There is the promise of a redeemer in the Messiah, but there is also this provision of a covering, all right? So keep those concepts in mind as we talk about justification by faith alone. There is the promise of a redeemer, and there is the provision of a covering. All right, so then we fast forward to the sacrificial system in Israel, and in this, in this sacrificial system, we see that there's this process where the shedding of blood is, is necessary as a covering. So every household 
would come to the temple at the appointed time, and they would bring a, a, a spotless lamb, a spotless goat without defect. They would bring it with them. They would, if they lived nearby, they would perhaps bring it on the journey, perhaps on the dad's shoulders. Uh, if, they, if they lived far away, they might come near the temple and purchase a, a spotless lamb, a lamb that was deemed um, appropriate to be sacrificed. It was a lamb that you lived with for a time. You knew the lamb. It was a pet. And then you would bring the lamb to the priest. On the appointed day, you would bring the lamb to the priest, and the head of the household would symbolically place his hand upon the head of the lamb. And, and so that it was actually a, a, a leaning on the lamb. And then the, the priest, in a very uh, humanitarian, careful cut, would, would slit the lamb's throat. And as the blood poured out of the lamb and the lamb gave way in death, you would, you would actually have the sensation of falling over. You were, you were leaning on that lamb. And this was to be a picture of leaning on or trusting in the, the, the provision of this blood on your behalf. The lamb's death was a substitute for your death. And so we see in Leviticus 1711. You just jot that down. Some people call it the John 316 of the Old Testament. It says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And I just want to say, to make it clear, because we're talking, we've been talking in James about external religion. This wasn't just a ritual. Like, there was a sense in which the worshiper was, was trusting that God was going to provide a covering for his sins. You weren't just doing it on the outside. You understood that you were, you were obeying God and that God was somehow providing the, the covering that you needed. The problem, of course, was that you had to do it every year. You had to do it over and over again. That provision was never finished. And of course, we know that it was pointing ahead to a greater provision in the person of Jesus Christ. So you have in the, in the sacrificial system this promise of a redeemer and this provision of a covering. All right, so then in John chapter 1 last year, we saw that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you were an Old Testament saint living at the time and you still trusted in God's promise of a, of a redeemer and of a, of a covering, then you should have had a sort of an aha moment of saying, oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the promised redeemer. He is the all-sufficient covering. And so, back to it, we are justified, declared righteous, by faith alone, in that we lean on Christ's death. In the same way that that Old Testament worshiper would lean on that little spotless lamb, we lean on Christ's death, we depend on Christ to bear our sin. That's why we are here today. We are here because we are the people of God who have trusted in Christ that his blood has covered our sin. Our guilt has been transferred to him in his death. And so Christ's death was way better than the death of a lamb. Hebrews 10, he says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, 
sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus finished the work. If you look at the design of the tabernacle, if you look at the design of the temple, the one piece of furniture that's not there is a chair because the priest's work is never done. The priest must keep working day and night to make this atonement for sins. But Jesus Christ, when he finished the work and ascended back to the Father, what did he do? He sat down because the work was done. If you read Paul and James speaking about justification, I want you to bring this picture with you because there's no other way to be declared righteous by God. Paul and James and Peter and all the other writers of the scripture, that is the way they know that we are righteous before God. You cannot keep the law. Your deeds are not enough to save you. And so the opposite of justification then is condemnation to be declared guilty. And outside of Christ, we all stand condemned before God. And so here's the sum of the matter as we come to James chapter 2 this morning. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, leaned on him in his death, and believed that God punished punished him for your sins, you are declared righteous before God. You have been transferred from the kingdom of uh, darkness to the kingdom of light. So that is Paul's teaching in summary. Obviously, there's a lot more we could say about that, but that's a summary of Paul's teaching about justification by faith. Don't add anything to it. It's foolishness. Don't try to think. You can do more. So then what part do works play? And so I want us to see this morning that Paul and James are not at odds with one another. They are in absolute agreement with each other. So perhaps the easiest way to think of it is like this. Paul is speaking of faith that saves. In Romans chapter 4, we'll look at that in a few minutes, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is speaking of the faith that saves. Uh, He is comparing salvation by works to salvation by faith. And he says, we are not saved by works, we are saved by faith. Okay, so Paul, he's telling us about faith that saves. James, on the other hand, is speaking of faith that is alive. All right? So faith that saves, faith that is alive. So James is comparing living faith to dead faith. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. All right? So that's what we're going to look at. So even to to finish the point then, let me read to you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 one more time, but I'm going to add verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. All right? This is verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul and James are not in an argument here. They are in complete agreement. You have been saved for good works, not by good works. All right, so that's what we're talking about this morning. Now, I am going to go quickly through this passage, and I don't want you to think that I am trying to minimize difficult verses. And I know that's what sometimes, you know, people will do. They'll just sort of skip over the hard parts. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. I hope you'll see that most of these statements are pretty clear and simple. And then I would invite you, if you have questions, as always, to come and talk to me or one of the other elders and clarify, all right, if, if you don't understand what, what James is saying here. We're going to move pretty fast. Here's my outline for the morning. Dead faith, verses 14 through 7. Demonic faith in verses 18 and 19, and then dynamic faith, or living faith, 
in verses 20 through 26, okay? All right, so let's take verses 14 through 17, dead faith. So we have a question and an illustration here about dead faith. Here's the question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Okay, so James, I'm just going to tell you, James believes the answer is no. There is no such thing as dead faith that saves, all right? And he says it three times in the passage. Down in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 26, he says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. And then similarly in verse 20, he says, faith apart from works is useless. So, a profession of faith without the practice of faith is useless. And this gets to the heart of what it means to believe. If I profess to believe, but my actions don't match my profession, then my profession becomes suspect. All right, so then James provides an illustration in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So we've talked about external manifestations of religion. We talked about it at the end of chapter 1. We talked about it at the beginning of chapter 2. To have an unbridled tongue and say that you are religious is to lie, right? However, to visit widows and orphans in their distress is true and undefiled religion before God. So external, if external expression of compassion, true religion. External compassion of an unbridled tongue, false religion. External uh, expression of religion that shows partiality, we saw last week, not an accurate representation of the faith. So there are representations of our faith that are accurate, and there are those that are inaccurate representations. So in this illustration, which is painful to read, a person professes to be faith and then is approached by a brother or sister who is in need, and the person very piously says, be warmed and be filled, and they walk away, and they don't do anything. God bless you. May you have plenty to eat. God bless you. May you be warm. I'm leaving now. These are sweet-sounding words, but they are not the same as faithful actions. This person is an armchair philanthropist. They mean to be comfortable. They may even mean to be pious, but they have no intention to meet the need. And James concludes very simply by saying, what good is that? If your words don't match the action, then your intentions are meaningless. And I would like to point out to you that the heart of external religion in James is meaningless words. We need to be careful what we say. We're going to see this next week in James chapter 3. We need to be very careful about what we say. Hymns sung with the lips but not with the heart are are expressions of of external meaningless worship. Prayers recited with no thought for the words, that could be evidence of dead faith. Do you stand and sing words to songs each week, but you have no intention of, of, of meaning what those words say? You just need to know that doesn't bring you closer to God. Even reading God's word, even speaking God's word, if, if you don't have any intention to obey it or to understand it, doesn't help you. We talk about this with the Lord's Supper. You can take the cup and you can take the bread, but if your heart isn't there, it's, it's, you're just having a little bit of juice and a little bit of cracker. And so James says in verse 17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Secondly, then we see demonic faith. 
All right, so someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So this is an objector. So James is responding to an objector. And James is speaking in the first person. He says, you have faith, objector, and I have works. And and James is, is saying, I'll show you my faith by my works. So faith is invisible, right? So we... I can't see air conditioning right now coming through those vents or right behind me, but I can feel it. I can feel that it's on, right? It's invisible. I can't see wind. I can tell you a lot of things. All right, so, you know, here's my illustration. This has always been my illustration. I'm, let's just say, say I'm, I tell you, I am a world champion pole vaulter. I am still practicing, like Olympic, Olympic level right now, 48 years old. I, I have got... I can show you, like, my, the pole that I have. For, it's a really great pole. It's, man, high-class championship pole. I have got pole vaulting shoes. I have got pole vaulting clothes. I could wow you with my knowledge. Let me tell you all the things that I know about pole vaulting. Now, most of you would sit there right now and look at me and be like, there's no way he is getting that body over something with a pole. Like, you, you know this. But you're like, okay, fine. Well, you know... Show me. I mean, let's go find a track with one of those little holes and a goalpost. You can jump over it. Let's see you do it. And I say, you know, you just got to take my word for it. I'm a pole vaulter. Got to believe me. It's absurd. Same it like this, okay? So just to take it further, like I may say, I am a world champion pole vaulter. And somebody else may say, I am a world champion pole vaulter, and I will show you by my pole vaulting. I would add, a bad pole vaulter is better than me claiming that I can pole vault, but I don't pole vault at all, right? It's the same with faith. You can say you have faith, but faith is invisible. Look at my faith. We show our faith by our works done in accordance with faith. And so James then takes it this shocking step further. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? This is stunning. It's stunning, but it actually makes complete sense. He says, do you not know that the demons have a solid theology? They believe a lot of things. The demons believe that God is one. In Matthew 8, 29, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke 4, 41, they acknowledge that Jesus is God himself. In Acts 19.15, they acknowledge the truth of Jesus' resurrection. So demons believe that Jesus is God and that he has been resurrected from the dead. That's some pretty solid belief. The demons know better than we do how important the church is. They've got the Trinity down. Like, raise your hand if you've got that one down. The demons, the demons see it. They understand the end times better than we do. They know their end. But demons aren't saved. And the objector says, I believe in one God. And James says, that's good. But do you know that the demons believe that too? And they shudder? They tremble? The thought of God freaks out the demons. They bristle at the name of Jesus. Why? Because they know who he is. But they will not bow before him. I graduated from seminary in May of 2001. It was a solid evangelical seminary. It was a seminary that you did not go to if you weren't serious about the Word of God. I can't think of anybody I graduated about whom I would say, that guy wasn't serious. That guy was a joker. Why was he even there? These guys were serious. Some of them, better students than me. Way better. 
But over the last 20 years, I hear from time to time about guys that I graduated from seminary with who haven't just left the ministry, they've left the faith. They're out. They've walked away from everything that they said they believed. And these guys, they still know all the same stuff. They were taught the same stuff that I was taught. You know, there's this epidemic right now of what people are calling deconstruction, deconstruction of their faith. People are taking their faith apart, and and they take it apart, and at the end, they don't put it back together. At the end, they walk away. Parents, I do believe, by the way, that this is why it is so important that we not just teach our kids the faith, but that we live it out in front of them, that we show them what it means. I, I want my children to know facts about the Word, but they also need to see those things lived out. They need to see that you have faith so that they can practice living by faith. And since faith is invisible, the only way they're going to see it is if someone lives it out in front of them. And I do believe hell is full of people who know their Bible. And that is not a happy thought. And that is not a comfortable thought. And it's a warning we should consider. Have you moved beyond just the recognition of who Jesus is into an actual relationship with Him? And so James says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is foolish? All right, so the third section here, dynamic faith. And I'm going to need you to turn quickly to a couple of places in your Bible, all right? So this is the point where I want to show you that James and Paul are not talking about two different things. So he goes to two Old Testament examples of living an active faith. Abraham, who you would expect, and Rahab, who you wouldn't. Let me read it to you. The faith of Abe. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Okay, I want you to turn in your Bible to two places. And if you've got one of those cool little, you know, string things, mark one and keep the other, keep your finger. I need you to turn to Genesis 15 and to Romans 4. Genesis 15 and Romans 4 and keep both of those places. And I've had a little cold, so I'm going to take this moment to take a drink of water. And I'll try not to start talking before you get there. Genesis 15 and Romans 4. We'll start with Genesis 15. If you, if you get to Exodus, go one more book. And you're Genesis, the first one in the Bible. If you get to the introduction, go forward a little bit. Genesis is easy. Are we good? All right, I'm satiated. All right, here we go. James looks at two passages from Genesis, and I'm going to take the second one first. All right, so Genesis 15, 6. So this is where James quotes... In James, he says, uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Genesis 15, let me get you there real quick. Genesis 12, don't turn there. I'm not asking you to hold more passages. I'm just telling you. Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham in the land of Ur and he says, you get up and I'm going to, you move to this land that I'm going to give you and I'm going to make you a, a great nation and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And then in Genesis chapter 14, 13, uh, God says to Abraham, I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea. The problem is Abraham is 75 years old at that first promise. And Sarah is 10 years younger than he is. So in Genesis chapter 15, which is where I've asked you to turn, and I haven't turned there yet, hold on. Genesis chapter 15, God appears to Abraham 
He says, fear not, Abraham. This is in verse 1. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, uh, behold, you give me, and a member of my household will be my heir. All right, so Abraham says, Okay, Abram, he says, Okay, I've got a good idea. You haven't given me a son yet, so here's my idea. I've got this guy, Eliezer from Damascus, and he's in my household, and he's a servant, and I really like him. God, Let's go ahead and get your work done, but we'll do it the easy way. Why don't you just make him my heir? Because I'm old. I don't really see how this is going to happen. I like Eliezer. Let's, let's do the work through him, right? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, This shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. All right. Possibly up to 10 years have passed at this point, by the way. So Abraham is 85 years old, possibly. Sarah is 75 years old. Verse 5. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. It's not Eliezer. It's going to be your real son. And if you look up at the stars, that's going to be the number of your offspring. And Abraham's like, Okay. And he says, he believes it. Verse, verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. All right, so that's the passage. That is the passage that James quotes and it's the passage that Paul quotes. So keep your, keep your finger in Genesis and look over at Romans 4, all right? So Romans 4, hold on, I didn't, I didn't do what I told you all to do. Romans 4, let's start in verse 2. So for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so I would say to you, on this verse, James and Paul agree. Yeah. So where was Abraham saved? He was saved when he had faith. At the moment that Abraham believed God, there were no works. Here's the promise. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You will have a son. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? Abraham didn't do anything. Okay, so when James cites this, he says, um, he, he's saying, look, that, that was the moment, the moment where faith came, all right? But then he says, down further, or up, I should say, sorry, I'm like all over the place here too. Y'all have it easier, because y'all can keep a finger there. Chapter 2, so he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? All right, so that then, Paul is citing Genesis 15, James is citing Genesis 22. Don't turn there. You can if you want to, but I'll just tell you real quick. God appears to Abraham and he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. So by this time, Isaac has been born. It's the one son. And remember, God said, this is where it's coming from. This, this boy is where it's coming from. This is going to be the promise. Take this son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? You're gonna, you were going to make this boy an heir. And then verse 7 and 8, after the journey, Isaac says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb of the burnt offering, my son. So they went on both together. 
Verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his son and took uh, his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 12, God says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. All right, here's what you need to know. The word justified, and, and this is, you, I can show you places. I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm moving fast here. The word justified can mean two related things, and they're, they're related legally. It can mean declared righteous, and it can also mean vindicated, right? And so in this place, James is saying Abraham's faith, which he already had, which had saved him, was vindicated when he was willing to offer his only son on the altar. He was really going to do it. He wasn't going through the motions, and as soon as God saw that he was truly about to dive that knife into his son, even though it didn't make any sense, God knew that his faith was real. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. <laughs> I, you know, is it possible that Abraham was like, oh, I was hoping you were going to raise him from the dead. <laughs> but this is good too. Like, I mean, Abram's like, God's going to work this out. Like, God, I am trusting in the promise. This is the promise. This is the boy. I'm trusting. I'm still going to obey God, even though it makes no sense. How was, God's faith, how was Abraham's faith vindicated? Because he acted on his belief. The one God had promised would be his heir. How is this going to work out if I do this right now? I have no idea. Maybe well, God will raise him from the dead, but I am going to trust God. And Abraham puts it all on the line. Quickly, Rahab. And I wish we had more time to spend with her. The faith of Rahab. In the same way, we're back in James 2. So here, to turn back to James 2. No more fingers. No more, um, no more strings. Back in James 2. In the same way was not Rahab also, Rahab the prostitute, prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So Joshua sends the men into Jericho to spy it out. Rahab gives them shelter. When the soldiers of Jericho come to search for them, she hides them on the roof. Listen to what she says when it comes time for them to leave. This is in Joshua 2. She says, look, we heard, I'm paraphrasing, we heard about what you did to Egypt, what God did, and we heard about what you did to Og, and we heard about what you did to Amorites, and we see you over there on the other side of the Jordan, and we knew you were coming, and so we locked ourselves in our city, and we trembled because we knew that your God was going to give, us, give you the land. That's a lot of knowledge that she has, by the way, just from, like, watching things. Like, this is a temple prostitute from Jericho, and she's figured out a lot of things just from hearing what God has done and looking at what they're doing on the other side of the Jordan River. And so all Jericho knows that Israel is coming, and Rahab says, our hearts were melting. Verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, which means the whole city of Jericho knew what was going on. They had heard the reports about Yahweh, and they had understood that Yahweh was giving them the land. And as far as we know, only one woman, a temple prostitute, said, I'm going to bow before that God. I'm going to ask that God for mercy. It's coming. 
and I, I need to get on that side. She believed and she acted. I always say, she gave up her home, she gave up her nation, she gave up her career, she gave up her gods. Her faith was vindicated. You know how Jesus says you have to give up your life to get it, but if you try to keep your life, you'll lose it? Like, so, so Rahab could have said, she could have said, I want to keep my city, and I want to keep my job, and I want to keep my gods, and I want to keep my house, and she would have lost it. But because she said, I'm going to give up my job, and I'm going to give up my house, and I'm going to give up my gods, and I'm going to give up my job, she gained her life. That is living faith. All right, so in conclusion, James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. When I saw my dad in that casket, I knew for sure he wasn't there, right? Like that's what happens when we go and when we see a loved one in a casket, the body looks so different, it couldn't be more clear. That, that person's not there. I think it's why, for me, that's why it's very important to see that body one more time before it goes into the ground so that I can be clear. That loved one, he is, he is not going into the ground. He is somewhere else. The body without the spirit is dead. So it is with faith without works. And when you see it, you know it. Empty religion and empty faith have no life-giving spirit. There's nothing to make it alive. And that's why this passage should not be controversial. I, I really don't think this passage should be controversial at all. And when you, see, when you start to see this, you, you start to see it all over the Bible. So these are some of the verses that I read this week. So listen, Romans, Romans 1.5, Paul says, Jesus our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name. The obedience of of the faith. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and your love, the love of every one of you and for one another is increasing. Your faith is growing and your love is increasing. One more. First Peter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So how are Rahab and Abraham examples of living faith? They were willing to lose everything for the sake of their faith. They obeyed even when it cost them. They saw the treasure of trusting God, and they understood that true things required actions. And so I, I skipped over that part there where James says of Abraham, he was called a friend of God. Do you want to be a friend of God? I do. And we should live by faith, and our works should reflect our faith. At the beginning of the passage in verse 14, James addresses his readers as brothers. And we've said this over and over again in this study. James is speaking to Christians. James' intention is not to try to convince unbelievers that they don't believe. James' intention is to convince Christians to act like Christians. But as I close, the question should still be answered for all of us. Do I have a faith that is alive? Abraham sinned a lot after he placed his faith in God. He sinned big. I won't even list some of the things. When we sin, we lean hard on the fact that we are justified by faith. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has taken the sin of the world. I confess my sin, and I am forgiven, and I am cleansed. But is your faith leading to obedience? Are you content with just knowing things about God? Don't let the extent of your faith just be biblical facts and insights. Examine your profession. Young people, does your faith lead you to act at home and at school? Or does your faith suddenly vanish with your friends or on the ball field? Read the Bible and do what it says. And one of the things that it says 
is that we should gather, every time we gather, we should participate in the Lord's Supper. Before we do, let's just sing one more time. The Lord our God is good. The Lord our God is good. Full of kindness and compassion, merciful and just, the Lord our God is good. Let that song be an expression of your heart. Let our partaking of this little bread and this little cup here be an expression of your heart. Don't just go through the motions. If you go through the motions and you just eat it and drink it, then you're just demonstrating lifeless faith. And, and you know, we say this every week, this little meal can't save you. It can't even fill you up unless you understand what it means. And it points to a cross that saves, and it points to a meal that we're going to have one day that is going to satisfy. Men and ladies, whoever's coming to hand out the bread and the cup, if you guys want to come and pick that up right now, and just as you wait, bow your heads, search your profession. Is what you say reflected by your life? You know, Jesus says, faith like a mustard seed. It's not a lot of faith, but but it's, it's faith. It's, it's faith that, that registers itself in our lives in works. Uh, the guys are going to hand out the bread and the cup. As soon as they do, hang on to that, and I will come up here and read, and uh, then we'll take together.